Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, as a lifelong aquarium keeper, I've noticed a bunch of behaviors that are pretty common to our community, that being the larger aquarium keeping community. Some are great and some are not so healthy. And I have a few hard and fast hobby rules, practices that I've personally developed over the years, sort of behaviors based on my experience with the hobby. And when I reflect on them, I realize that many of them were simply a result of my socialization, my upbringing within the hobby when I was younger and more impressionable or I don't know, something like that. Some are actually kind of stupid, really, based on outmoded thinking and ideas like A long time ago, I developed this thing about never feeding dried or prepared foods to my fishes. I just didn't for decades. I mean, like never. There was a time when I'd literally sooner swat houseflies or collect ants from the backyard by hand before I'd throw in some flakes. It was that ingrained into me. I know it's a bit ridiculous. It it, it is. I think I have an idea why and how this sort of weird mindset evolved, though. Back in the day, like during my pre-teenage years, I was obsessed with killifishes, those little colorful fishes that we all sort of know by now. Now, the prevailing hobby wisdom at the time was that you should feed them exclusively with live and maybe frozen foods. It was almost like there was a taboo about dry food, especially if you were serious about keeping and breeding them. And there were plenty of experts, and I say that with air quotes, who said that killies wouldn't even eat prepared foods as if the fishes felt that these foods were somehow harmful or detrimental to them. And this thinking, of course, was not limited to killifish. Where did this kind of thinking come from? Where did this particular thing come from? Well, I'd seen evidence that this same sort of dogma was floating around the hobby since well, well, well before I was born. The guppy breeding reference books from the 1950s and 60s, which my dad accumulated while he was in the hobby, and which formed much of the basis of my hobby, uh, aquarium hobby up, upbringing or indoctrination because I used to read them for hours after school. They sort of eschewed dry foods based on, a, you know, uh, based on I'm not sure what, but they insisted upon feeding your breeding fishes newly hatched baby brine shrimp and frozen adult brine shrimp almost exclusively. So there it is, the vector for my attitude from outmoded thinking of an earlier age in the hobby. And if you read a lot of books from, you know, the the 50s and 60s, uh, dried food wasn't even really considered yet. I mean, they were probably hoping for an alternative, but it wasn't really talked about much. Yet, oddly, weird food like, you know, finely scraped beef heart ugh, was considered good stuff for fishes. I guess it still is in some areas, but still kind of gross, right? I think that there was an interesting dichotomy going on in the hobby during the so-called golden era. Even though technology was starting to impact the practices and procedures that were prevalent during the day, there seemed to be a distrust among hobbyists about abandoning or even about evolving practices long held dear, like 
feeding dried foods in place of or even in addition to live or frozen foods. I call BS on that. I think that's ridiculous. But in all fairness, this was at the dawn of the high-tech influence on the hobby with all the insanely scientifically derived dried foods that we take for granted now just starting to really appear. So hobbyists from, you know, uh, the generation before mine were still strongly influenced by the old school hobbyists who collected and grew their own Daphnia, brine shrimp, white worms, glass worms, whatever. And they were perhaps a bit spooked about the idea that you can provide your fishes with high quality nutrition in a can. I mean, the dried foods of the 50s and 60s sort of, well, sucked, right? And my adapting that same mindset makes a weird sort of a, uh, a sense, uh, in a weird sort of a sense, uh, you know, given the way human behaviors are, not to mention the way hobbyists think, it's just a kind of a weird thing. And then being a really young guy in a very hardcore hobbyist group like the AKA at the time, which was the late 80s, where I, I'd hazard a guess that the average age was like 55, I couldn't help but be influenced by that crowd. I mean, some of these people were even serious hobbyists in the pre-World War II era and pretty much invented many of the practices that formed the basis of our hobby for a generation. And it was pretty rad, actually, but there was sort of a dogma, wasn't there? Live food was just considered what you do when you bred killies. If you weren't into growing your own, frozen was the only option to fall back on. And of course, even the use of frozen foods would cause a few murmurs and hushed com- you know, comments about your skill and devotion or lack thereof to the hobby. I mean, how lazy are you if you use frozen food? That was a tough crowd. And using dried food was almost seen as a shortcut that not so serious hobbyists would take. I mean, shame, right? I mean, if you couldn't even be bothered even to thaw out some frozen food, let alone culture your own fruit flies or whatever, your skill set and your dedication were highly questioned. And of course, there was the widely accepted opinion that dried and prepared foods were not as nutritionally sound as the live foods that we grew and collected, which at the time probably wasn't that far from the truth, actually, right? Obviously, that's completely outmoded thinking these days. The technology behind the development and the manufacturing of dried and frozen foods has evolved so much that even the cheapest, most generic mass market can of flake foods is probably better than 99% of the most premium prepared foods available in the 1960s. I mean, stuff has thankfully evolved. In fact, nowadays, I suppose some hobbyists might even question why you'd even go to the effort to collect your own food or culture it yourself, you know, worry about pathogens or the time involved or whatever. Your exotic wild-caught fishes can be fed near-natural quality foods from a can, a premix, or the freezer daily. And I know many hobbyists who keep spawn and rear amazing fishes, including reef fishes, almost exclusively on prepared foods. Yet our attitudes about stuff in the hobby have changed a bit, haven't they? One of the things I've noticed a lot of lately during my discussions with fellow hobbyists is that we seem to be really, I don't know, hard on ourselves, not finding satisfaction with what we have or what we've accomplished, rather feeling that we need to tweak and modify and fix stuff in order to achieve some sort of goal. I'm not always sure what the goal is. Is it recognition, the attention on social media, approval from so-called experts? Well, while on the surface, there is nothing wrong whatsoever with working on our tanks, trying to improve them. It's the reasoning behind such efforts which concerns me. I've talked to several hobbyists lately who've told me that they feel that they must rework their tanks because they're not you know, keeping up with some of the work that they see on social media. Like, what the fuck, really? Why, why do we have to keep up and with whom and to what end? Why not just look to nature for your approval if that's what you're seeking? 
Yeah, create aquariums based on natural aquatic habitats in both function and in form. I've talked about this a lot, right? Not the whole biotope contest. This has to be 100% price, precise to be cool thing. You know, the Chaparra River, late spring, 32 kilometers from Manaus at low water level. Not that kind of garbage. You've seen that stuff. It's cool. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to call it garbage, but it's so specific. It's specific enough to turn a lot of people off, scare some casual hobbyists away, or just make others like me laugh a little bit. I mean, what do I know, right? But I just think that the idea of an aquarium inspired by a specific natural habitat or a niche in form and function is an incredible way to go for an aquarium. A sort of biotope inspired approach with less rigidity and a little artistic liberty thrown in. I just think that would be so cool. Imagine if we as a hobby movement merged the obsession of the biotope people with the artistic passion of the competition aquascaper and the diligence of a breeder. Hey, it's possible. I mean, that's a lot of you guys, right? It is. What if we simply looked at the millions of possibilities that nature provides if we look at the amazing scenes that are effortlessly created by her processes? Wouldn't attempting to replicate the function and form of nature of one of these types of habitats be at least as challenging or beautiful and satisfying as creating underwater beach themes or sunken Grand Canyons or whatever? Yeah, I think it would. I look at Instagram posts by influencers taken out on hikes and mountains and, and, and in the forest, and they'll take a picture of a pile of rocks under a, foreign tree, a fallen tree or maybe even a, a, a mountain, a little rockscape or whatever, and they'll obsessively attempt to recreate that look. But it's a terrestrial scene. I mean, that's cool, but why do you do that? <laughs> What's wrong with looking into a stream, you know, going snorkeling, whatever, deriving your inspiration from that, an actual aquatic habitat, and then replicating that in the aquarium? Is it because it doesn't look natural enough by artistic standards or that it's not perfectly orderly, perhaps a bit dirty? What if we back off from trying to assist or modify natural processes when we create aquariums? You know, after that initial, oh my God, the sand isn't perfectly white and isn't that a decomposing leaf or holy crap, those are random twigs covered in biofilms. What the fuck? Yeah, wouldn't there, would there be an effort to understand or consider why these things are present in the habitat and for that matter in your aquarium and how they truly represent nature as she exists? Uh, any desire to research the wild habitat that the tank was purported to replicate and to understand the complex interactions between the fishes and their environment? I mean, maybe, hopefully. Let's get back to that food thing for a second because it's a great example that I can relate to directly. You know, fish food is one of those things that we simply take for granted. It's stuff that becomes a, a habit and then a sort of rule in our head like what I did with you can't feed frozen food or, you know, dry food or whatever. Now, unlike my predecessors, I wouldn't look down on anyone who keeps a package of flakes in his, his or her home and swears by a high-tech, scientifically formulated pellet food. Or, look, our lifestyle as humans has changed so much over the decades, and these foods offer not just convenience, they offer practicality and cost-effectiveness. And let's just be honest, convincing your significant other that it's just fine to keep a container of Wrigley worms in the refrigerator right next to the leftover lasagna from last night's meal is increasingly difficult. Time and convenience tend to relegate stuff like culturing live foods and even reading instructions, we'll get to that in a minute, to the hardcore DIY type hobbyist crowd. You know, hatching brine shrimp eggs for our baby fishes should be aquarium keeping 101, yet the reality is that it might just become one of those interesting, charming, yet essentially largely extinct skills in a large swath of the hobby. 
you know, just like horseshoe making, subsistence farming, grinding our own coffee beans and changing the oil in our cars and stuff, stuff which simply became unnecessary or, you know, un- unnecessary or, you know, not something that we have to fall back on because of the developments in our little world. Cool to know stuff, a novelty even, but not necessary. I suppose that I can't fault the shift. I mean, our culture's evolved over the last few decades, hasn't it? I mean, we stream movies on our iPhones. We use websites to deliver food from local restaurants. We let total strangers drive our 14-year-old daughters around in town in their own vehicles with a simple smartphone app and no concerns whatsoever, something that would have freaked out any parent just a decade ago. Yeah, cultural changes. Look at the explosion in so-called meal kits targeted at a growing segment of consumers who apparently need a paint-by-numbers approach to preparing meals for their families. Order online and it's delivered to your door, complete with instructions. You know, it's easier than planning out a meal, shopping for the you know, readily available ingredients and preparing them from scratch, right? Well, maybe. I mean, I can't entirely diss that idea. It goes along with this cultural shift. Many people will tell you they have less free time than ever and the demands on their leisure time are many and people have to make choices. Time's more valuable than ever to us. We value different stuff now than we did even 10 years ago, let alone several decades ago. Time's changed. It's pretty cool. And probably for the better, right? I mean, I know my mom would not have been all that disappointed if I fed lots of freeze-dried Tubifex worms over the years instead of laying out uh, cantaloupe rinds and containers of water in the backyard in the summer evenings to bait mosquitoes into laying their eggs so I could collect larvae. I mean, that was kind of wacky, right? <laughs> sure, we could romanticize stuff like collecting and growing Daphnia and Tubifex worms. We could lament and think that it's sad that most people don't do it that way anymore. Yet it's kind of silly to do that. Culture, people, and especially the hobby evolve and change over time. And that's a great thing. Yet there's all sorts of interesting signs that things are changing again. Growing your own is enjoying a sort of rebirth of sorts. Or culturing live foods is becoming more and more prevalent among even less than totally hardcore hobbyists. Live food culture is almost becoming a sub-hobby of sorts. It's starting to come full circle, I suppose. Much like home brewing of beer or whatever like that stuff kind of, you know, kind of is. Yet you don't have to, but it's sort of fun. It's a great skill to acquire. It's an homage to the craft of our hobby. And I love that. Yeah, times do change. The good news is that ideas, practices, and rules, you know, once considered beyond question, are open for conversation, analysis, and, well, evolution. The speed with which information spreads in the hobby enables rapid evolution of ideas, practices, and procedures. Look at our little hobby niche here as evolved and spread. Yet, even with the rapid dissemination of ideas and information, human stubbornness and laziness still went out more often than you'd think. I mean, yeah, we're in a world where tweets and hashtags have replaced long-form conversations and stuff like that, and where many hobbyists won't read the massive amount of information that's readily available to help them with a simple click on just about any topic they want. Even though many hobbyists are interested in what we discuss here in the tent on the blog, a higher percentage would rather listen to the podcast. I get it. It's cool as long as they absorb the information. I mean, we want to get the information to you in a way that's easier for you to digest. Time is more precious than ever. So we try to get information out in a means that's easy to take in in a variety of formats to keep us informed during our busy days. And yet there's still a shockingly large number of hobbyists who just won't absorb all but the most superficial information even if it's right in front of them. Don't believe me? I get at least two to three emails every week from customers who order botanicals for me and then they say, okay, I received my botanicals. Do I need to prepare them for use or could I just add them to my tank? I, I want to slap myself sometimes. I mean, 
I've spent hours and hours developing and sharing best practices right here, creating instructions on how to prepare botanicals, the justification for why we do it, and the benefits of engaging in a preparation protocol. It's formed the foundation of what we do. Not a set of rules, but definitely a recommendation, a sort of best practices that we all want to make as obvious to as many hobbyists as humanly possible. We even went so far a few years back as to develop a sort of an easy-to-digest infographic that summarizes this important process with a minimum amount of verbiage that we include with every first and second time order. It's important to impart as much information to hobbyists as humanly possible about the basic practices of our specialty. The apparent lack of desire to read or research stuff that one would think should be fun because, you know, it's a hobby, right? You should want to find out stuff might just be a thing with culture, a shift of sorts. And I suppose it makes sense. Time and convenience tend to relegate stuff like culturing live foods and even reading instructions to the hardcore DIY hobbyist crowd, like I said. Now, the other thing too is to understand that some ideas that we discuss, approaches, philosophies, ideas, they transcend time and space or even what we do. Understand that when we create a botanical method aquarium, not only do we have the opportunity to create aquariums which differ significantly from those in the years past, we have a really unique window into the natural world and the role of these materials in wild aquatic habitats. We're not as freaked out by stuff like detritus and biofilms as we were previously. We're letting go of some preconceived notions of what a healthy aquarium looks and functions like. And I think that's a huge evolution in the hobby. Consider that the next time you toss some more botanicals into your aquarium. You're not just adding to the look. You're contributing to the abundance within the little ecosystem you've created. And think about what happens in natural aquatic ecosystems when it comes to organisms which arise from the presence of leaves and other materials in the aquatic environment. It seems like we talk a lot here about the idea of these food webs and holistic aquariums, but I think it's important. Uh, it's an important pair of concepts to think about more often. For decades, the aquarium hobby was about establishing a tank by following the, you know, and allowing the beneficial bacteria to colonize the filter and the substrate so they can perpetuate the nitrogen cycle. We all more or less get that. However, I think where we tend to differ from the masses in our hobby and our botanical method approach is that we are replicating or attempting to replicate, whether we know it or not, another part of the dynamic and fascinating tropical ecosystems some aspects of the food web. Now, I say aspects of because it's awfully difficult, perhaps impossible to, in the confines of a closed system to have a completely self-sustaining cycle of food production without some external inputs. But that's perfectly okay because what we do in our botanical method aquarium practice is almost exactly analogous to what happens in nature. I think about that. That's pretty wonderful, right? Uh, you know, it's what happens in natural flooded forests or jungle streams. External sources, you know, like weather, whatever, deposit leaf litter and plant material into the system, spurring the growth of organisms which break it down as well as depositing food. Yeah, just like nature, that's what our aquariums are like. There's no significant in situ primary production in a lot of these leaf litter flooded forest aquatic ecosystems. And in an aquarium, just like in nature, the food web depends upon those alochthonous inputs, you know, food from outside the aquatic environment. We've talked about that, such as fruit, plant parts, flower blossoms, leaves and wood from the surrounding forests. And at the very base of these food chains that forms are the decomposing fungi and bacterial biofilms. They 
help soften and begin to break down the leaves which are deposited into the water. And then, in turn, they're fed upon by chironomids, you know, bloodworms and other small organisms which colonize the leaf litter. And, of course, then by the fishes. Now, fishes are usually a little late to the party, but they show up in surprising numbers in these high-diversity, low-biomass systems. And these systems, just like our aquariums, are constantly changing and evolving, both in terms of their physical structure and the population of fauna. And they're much, like many aquariums, somewhat ephemeral with more or less limited lifespans. Now, I'm often quoting interesting passages from relevant uh, scholarly research that I've found. And here's one by uh, a, a scientist named P.A. Henderson when he mentions the dynamics of fish populations and the structure of the leaf litter systems themselves in Amazonia. I'm just going to read it right to you. He says, Leaf litter banks dry out or become submerged rapidly depending upon recent rainfall and the annual cycle of inundation. Smaller litter banks form or disappear after sudden floods or tree falls. Even the largest banks probably only, only exist for, listen to this number, 20 to 30 years during which their physical characteristics are continually changing. Therefore, all of the leaf litter fauna is adaptable and capable of rapid colonization. That's a lot of stuff right there to absorb. I continue. During high water, new habitats become available and the permanent litter banks are deep underwater where oxygen may be limiting. Many species probably move into the forest. Recently, the young leaf litter fish have been caught amongst the leaves of agapo trees and bushes, suggesting the reproduction normally occurs at high water when fish densities are much lower. Thus, within the fish fauna, there exists considerable adaptability to seek out and colonize new habitats. I mean, unpack all that stuff for a second. That's a lot. Think about the ways in which an aquarium, specifically a botanical method one, is analogous to these natural systems. That alochthonous inputs th th that we talk about in our instances are the addition and replacement of botanicals, leaves, and, and for that matter, fish food. The additions of these materials directly spur the growth of existing and new fungal and microorganisms, uh, microorganism populations. They supply supplemental food for some fishes like detritivores and certain catfishes and enhance the physical environment of the aquarium by providing additional hiding space, territories, and spawning locales, just like they do in nature. So when you really think about it, we as practitioners of the Botanical Method Aquarium are in a most unique position to learn firsthand about how the fishes interact with and benefit from their physical environment. We control many of the variables, such as the influx of new structural materials, you know, leaves, wood, botanicals, whatever. We control the nutrient inputs and exports, you know, feeding and water exchanges, and the introduction and population density of fishes in the environment. As you surmise, some of these things that we've done as general aquarists for centuries are, regardless of whether we were conscious about the analogy to nature or not, are there. However, in our case, some of these practices, you know, addition, replacement, and removal of botanicals are essential, exact, and they're basically the exact duplicates of what happens in nature. Part of the game, as we've discussed ad nauseum here, is to understand, appreciate, and ultimately embrace the way the aquatic environment is influenced by fungal growth, biofilm, and decomposition, which occurs when botanicals are added to our aquariums. And as we often say, that means making a mental shift to accept the unique aesthetics and function of a botanical method aquarium. You know, the brown water, the stringy biofilms, and the decomposing leaves and botanicals, all that stuff, all of those things that we've talked about. They all have their place in our world. The most challenging part of starting and managing one of these functionally aesthetic systems is to appreciate not only 
how they function, but to understand why they function and look the way they do. To those just jumping into this world, I assure you that it's like no other aquarium you've ever maintained. Botanical method aquariums embody the art of observation and study. Much like managing any type of aquarium, the botanical method aquarium is about finding a balance, a quality, a quantity, a cadence for adding stuff so that the closed environment of your aquarium can assimilate the new materials and the bacteria, the fungi, and the other organisms which serve to assimilate the bioload can break them down and adjust. You'll get it after that initial, what have I done? Where's all this, what's all this biofilm stuff freak out that you'll have? I'm sure something clicks and then you understand. And I think we're starting to see a new emergence of a more holistic approach to aquarium keeping, not just in our world, but a realization that we've done amazing things so far, keeping fishes and plants in a grass or glass or acrylic box with applied technique and husbandry. It's pretty amazing. But that there's also room for improvement and to push the boundaries even further by understanding and applying our knowledge of what happens in a real aquatic environment. You're making mental shifts, replicating nature in aquariums by achieving a greater understanding of nature. You're laying down the groundwork for the next great phase of aquatic husbandry, innovation, and breakthrough. The real blurring of the lines between nature and aquarium is already underway. We've come pretty far already for challenging ourselves as a community and now we're definitely ready for a move to the next level of natural botanical method aquariums. Aquariums that by virtue of the unique materials that they utilize and the habitats that they try to replicate look and function in radically different manners than we've worked with before. It's a fun and really fascinating journey. One that will not only yield a greater understanding of our fishes, but the precious and fascinating environments from which they come. And it'll also yield a greater appreciation for the functions and vulnerabilities of these wild ecosystems. And what that means is that we're going to be in a better position than ever as aquarists to call attention to the perils that they face. And when we inspire non-aquarists to understand and learn more about this stuff, the whole planet wins. Could this be a rethinking or a reimagining of how we sp you know, spawn and rear some of our fishes? Could all this playing around with leaves and twigs be more of a technique than the hobby has previously thought i'm thinking so <laughs> stay thoughtful stay bold stay diligent stay experimental stay curious and stay with me i'm really glad you stayed with me on this meandering little philosophical rant and always stay wet until next time this is scott Feldman from 10 at aquatics thanks for spending part of your day with me i look forward to seeing you on the next installment of the 10.